Welcome to the Mind Care Podcast, where the mind, brain, and body meet. Here's your host, Glennis Bretherton. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. I'd like to introduce you to Richard Hill. He's acknowledged internationally as an expert in human dynamics and communications, the brain and the mind. He is an international lecturer and a key speaker in topics such as neuroscience and psychosocial genomics. Richard lectures to the psychological profession in Australia and the rest of the world, and he has a strong ongoing engagement with coaching and business communities. Hi, Richard, and welcome to Mind Care Podcast. It's really great to be here, Glynis, and I believe I am the very first. Yes. Is this true? This is true. This is true. So we'll see how we go. <laughs> this, this is daunting. I, I should have worn a better shirt. But anyway, <laughs> it's, oh, it's very exciting. I, I'm very excited about the project that you're doing, and it's, it's actually my great pleasure uh, to, to be the one that, that kicks things kicks things on. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's lovely. It's lovely to have you as my first person on the podcast, which is great. Yeah, great. thanks for that. Um, well, I was kind of thinking that we might take you back to the beginning and um, find out why you became so interested in mind, body, brain and healing sciences. What what has led you to today, actually? <laughs> Yes, it's a hell of a thing because here I am today with this this fabulous book on mirroring hands with with Ernie Rossi, and uh, uh, how on earth did I get here? And it's it's a it's a strange thing, I guess. The best part, and when we talk about opportunities, sometimes we talk about difficulties in our opportunities. Sometimes we talk about the supports, and I, I think mine has really been a story of the support because I had a fantastic mother. Uh, I mean, really, we, I'm a great, I'm a great uh, poster boy for secure attachment. Now, that doesn't mean that I had a lot of really difficult and unpleasant things that happened through life. Uh, you know, mum and dad were divorced when I was young. She then uh, found a wonderful man who became my mentor who died suddenly when I was 13. Money has come and gone. Sometimes it's all gone. Um, but in amongst it all was this idea that you could you could bounce. And I actually heard something I said the other day. I said, I've bounced from recovery moment to recovery moment. And I was thinking about it, and it's interesting you asked the question because I was thinking about that thing. I said, isn't that interesting that I look at my life and I see myself bouncing from recovery to recovery, whereas a lot of other people that I've talked to, and certainly as a psychotherapist, they talk about bouncing from failure to failure. Now, if they're bouncing from failure to failure, that means there are recoveries in between. So it's really a matter of where you look. And I guess my mum uh, was was a lot responsible for for giving me the idea that if you just waited and were patient and worked hard uh, and believed hard that you could recover. And uh, I think that's been true. Mm. So you say the word recovery. That's a really interesting word to me. So with recovery... Um, it, it means that, uh, well, to me, that you're a survivor, that, you know, no matter what is put in front of you, that you've made something out of it. It's a positive kind of, um, you know, response to some of these adversities that have been put in front of you along the way. It, is that right? Yeah, and, and it's a good point to, to do because actually I want to extend it even further. 
every moment of the day, we move through a series of difficulties, demands, stress response, and recoveries. Uh, we are actually a uh, biologically and a, 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 or most living life, as I understand it, is exactly the same. We we flow through uh, into recovery on a regular basis. Uh, just for example, uh, after this, I would think I will have the demand. It's the middle of the day. I'm going to have the demand and a bit of a stress um, about being hungry. Uh, and then I'm going to eat something and I will recover. Mm-hmm. And it really is as simple as that. Now, a lot of this demand, stress or, or activation, which is all stress really means, the things that we talk about when we talk about stress, actually distress where things aren't solved. But uh, demand, activation and recovery occur outside of our conscious awareness, completely outside of our conscious awareness. By the time we've woken up to the fact that we've got the flu or a cold or a runny nose or something of the sort, our immune system has been jumping up and down, doing things for quite some time. It's difficult to say. It varies between different uh, different processes. But our conscious awareness is is often so far behind the actual processes of response to demand and movement towards recovery, uh, that our conscious uh, awareness is, is, to some degree, only partially useful. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because that's a really good um, kind of lead into the book, really, uh, what you're talking about um, about um, there. Um, but before we go into the book, there's something else I'd like to sort of touch on. I know, I know. And I have to tell you, um, you know, the other day we were talking about how I've completely wrecked the book. <laughs> I and, have to show my you. Answer, oh, yes. Look, my answer look to this. you. Yeah. Because <laughs> my answer to you in response to that is um, uh, you haven't yeah. wrecked it, you've used it. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you said to me too, now it's a book. Now it's a book. Yeah. Now it's a book. Yeah. Um, really apologies cool. to all those people who really do like to have these lovely pristine um, uh, volumes in their shelves. Uh, <laughs> uh, but write on mine, yeah. please. Yeah. yeah. No, it's it's great. I'm just sort of looking at some notes here. Um, one thing, you know, before going any further, you know, after meeting you and, and having a few discussions with you, you tell me that you're an actor. And um, I find it really interesting because I have a couple of other acting friends. And uh, one thing about being an actor is that they're an observer of um, human behaviour. Uh, you know, and you've spoken to me about um, responding as an actor to the, you know, to one of the characters in the play or, or the show that, that you do and um, and how you respond. So would you take that a little bit further for me and for us uh, about what you meant about that? Yeah, I mean, acting is really reacting. Um, uh, just acting is what you get in soap operas where people just say the lines and and uh, and they act. I am acting, but acting is is um, just such a wonderful training ground for any form of of uh, interpersonal uh, therapeutic work for for you know hypnotherapy or, or psychotherapy or counselling or any of those things because you're always looking at fundamentally a script where people have dialogue that is insufficient, 
where they quite often lie or misrepresent themselves, where things happen unexpectedly all the time that you need to to, uh, respond to. And as a performer, someone said to me the other day, uh, it was uh, another interview when talking about this, and he said, how, how do you put up with like doing eight, eight weeks or, or 12 weeks or even more sometimes a year of performances, eight performances a week? And I said, ah, because there's always something different. There's always something new that gives you that moment of, of, of what is really a miracle, uh, that you could think after doing something for six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve, fourteen weeks, that you'd find a miracle. And that is the best message for a therapist. If you are sitting in your room and you and your your head is going, Oh gosh, I'm doing this again. Here, now do this exercise. Here's your homework. Do oh, you didn't do your homework. Oh God. Instead, it's like, Oh wow! I'm doing exactly the same. This is this is this is the therapy that I need to use now. Now that's interesting. So I'm using that one, and I'm giving. Here's your homework. Wow! They've come back, and they didn't do the homework. What does that tell me? Where does that take me? How do I respond? React? What is the information that I'm being given about how to play out the scene? And. Uh, I can't believe it. I've actually got a book. But I, I did pitch it to a publisher, and they said I think it's a bit early for it. But it's called Almost Everything I Know in Psychotherapy I Learned in Acting School. Not so much that 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 that's psychotherapy, but we learn from our most uh, comfortable platform the most about life. And uh, I did it from acting because I'm a big, rambunctious, outgoing kind of weird fella. <laughs> Actually, while you're talking about that, there's a word that's running through my mind and it's um, intuition. And um, I can imagine, you know, while you're working with somebody or acting with someone, there's a part of you that is running on intuition because you're waiting for that response and you're intuitively kind of tapped into that that present moment. And uh, if we kind of, you know, sort of take that kind of scenario and bring that into the therapy room, um, you know, there's a part of us that as therapists, we run on this intuition. I mean, am I on the right track there? I'm not an actor, but, you know. Um, no, it's terrific. Yeah. It's terrific, Glennis. Yeah. And the thing is, and actually after acting for 25 years and, and I found that I wasn't a star, oh, well, a couple of, oh, of close balls. Oh, we was real close. We were real close a couple of times, but I'm kind of glad because uh, because I did. Uh, I was very, very close, for example, to getting the lead in West Side Story some years ago, and I didn't. And then the production fell over, and you know, apparently I was like second choice or third choice or something. Anyway, uh, I was watching West Side Story at the West End when I, I travelled, and I was sitting there. I was much older, in my forties then, and actually a tear started rolling down my cheek, not just because of the show, but because I was inside. It was going. I could have done that. But four or five rows in front of me, these people stood up and in all goodness of their heart, they turned to each other and they said, well, that was good. Uh, Pizza. Mm. And I thought, oh, I'm so glad I've changed profession because people get up and they go, I feel better about my life now. So it's a very good thing. So it's exploring though this idea. So, these ideas, intuition, now that's a word that sort of floated around. Words get kind of floated around and they get um, uh, not misused, but they get sort of diminished or, or de-specialized. 
And intuition, to some degree, has become this weird, crazy, I don't know where it comes from thing, and maybe it's from God, maybe it's from outside, maybe it's from angels, maybe it's a miracle. But it's in learning, mm. in knowing, intuition, not out tuition where I experience my learning on the outside. It's how it affects me on the inside. And it comes from, it's the learning I have inside that comes forward. And again, I learned about this in acting school because when I'm sitting in the therapy room and I'm doing a therapy and somebody says something and then I respond or perhaps I I instigate a a therapeutic practice that I'm aware of. Perhaps we go to some CBT or perhaps we do some narrative or, or perhaps we do whatever it is, another part of me sort of consciously goes, wow, where did that come from? Why am I doing doing that? And it goes back to exactly the same experience I had when I decided I really loved acting. And I got up, I was doing improvisation, uh, uh, first term in acting school. And there was a lass and she got up and we started, basically, I started acting out the drama I was having with my current girlfriend who was sort of going, I don't like it as an actor. Uh, which was a bit difficult because I was. Uh, But I was doing that. And then at one point, there was a point, because, of course, the girl I'm uh, improvising with, she's not my girlfriend. So she's not giving me back what my girlfriend gives back. She's giving her own stuff. And suddenly it just flipped. And I started saying stuff that I had no idea where it was coming from. And, in fact, I was almost floating above myself watching myself act do this stuff, going, wow, what are you doing? That's I, that's interesting. Why would you say that? And then at one point I got all very upset and I smacked one of the bits of furniture and broke a bit off or something, and we all went, oh, that there was the, the, the breaking of the trance. It was a trance. There's no question yes, about it. Yes, yes. The breaking of the trance, and we all came back and went, oh, and we all sat down and my acting teacher just said, very good. Next, you know, so we went on. And this idea of moving into a uh, what we call in hypnotherapy trance, what uh, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi called flow, this thing of automatic interaction where the in knowledge is to is tuiting, is teaching and allowing the knowledge uh, to emerge into our conscious, which then cherry picks around the brain and finds an actualization to present. In the same way from our intuition, we have a build-up which pops out into our head as I'm hungry, which will happen in about an hour. And then the brain goes, well, what do we do when we're hungry? I've got this memory. I've got this thing. And so I get up off the chair and I go to the fridge or I go to the pantry cupboard. Uh, and even that can be an almost automatic behavior. I can find myself halfway to the to the to the fridge before I actually consciously go, oh, I'm hungry. So all these interplays are occurring, and our consciousness is really used to actualize it, to give it directed focus. Mm. Mm. Um, but something inside you knows you need to do CBT now, or knows you need to say, uh, I'm going into this frame or knows it needs to borrow from two or three things and invent something that you've never done before. Yes, yeah, yeah. And that's the nature of intuition, not as a weird out there 
uncontrolled, crazy thing, but actually is the thing that is more in control because it's operating, oh dear, here we go, under the nature of complex systems. Now, there's some information that we can get into as well is these systems because you talk about, you know, these systems through your book. Um, But there's just one thing, although you might want to um, sort of tackle this this word later, and that you talked about um, observing yourself, you know, while you were were doing something. And so with that – that word, you know, observation, um, that is something that, again, we bring into the therapy room, that we're not only um, observing ourselves in therapy and how we respond to the client, but how we observe the client and what sort of information that they're telling us um, that is running outside the dialogue, the verbal dialogue. Um, So can you tell us a bit about that as well? Yeah, it's even more interesting, a little bit more uh, 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 detailed than that. And it was so. Some of this comes from systems theory, but it actually comes from information that we uh, extract from quantum theory as well. And let's not get too carried away with how we can do quantum in the big world. We can't, but we'll talk about that maybe or maybe not later. But it, you are the observer and the operator. You can be that at the same time. So when you're uh, so me as the as the actor um, doing this improvisational stuff, that's the operator. And I'm actually able to have a part of me that's able to observe the operator at exactly the, at the same time. And this is what goes on uh, and needs to be a skill, a, a sensitivity that you develop over a, over a period of time. And... Um, uh, that's why acting was such a great training for it, because uh, uh, I may have been uh, acting this particular character and responding and doing that sort of thing, the operator of the character. But I also might have had to observe the fact that uh, Richard actually wanted to go and have a pee um, or, or, or something of the sort yeah. and manage those two observations. And this is what happens in the therapy room as well. We need to be able to observe ourselves, observe the client, but also look at the operation which is occurring by in the, in the client, in ourselves, and of course, in the relationship and the relational space, the social synapse between us. So there's a lot going on of which you are participating and observing potentially at the same time, but it takes a certain amount of training and work to uh, to be able to grasp that capacity to observe and function at the same time. And this is when Erickson, uh, uh, Erickson was talked about as a genius of manipulation. And Rossi said, no, he was a genius of observation. Yes, yes. But because he could observe and operate at the same time, knowingly. Mm. Uh, so so uh, whenever you're observing something in an experience, you're operating at the same time. Uh, and if you don't notice what the op- what you're doing is an operant part of the of the context, that just means you've got some sensitivity to build up, and that takes a while. I fortunately learned it doing 25 years of acting, and it probably took me 10 years to to really get it. Yeah, yeah. It it um it, it is as if you uh, enter into the same um. 
the word that's coming to my mind is energy field. Um, as a clinical hypnotherapist, I consider that I drop down into an unconscious state and I'm, I'm discussing or interacting with the client unconscious to unconscious. unconscious. Yeah. Mm. And when you say, uh, we talk the energy field, which is cool, although energy is just activity yes. uh, and there's activity in everything. So it's really the, the easier way to talk about it is just think of it as a field. So a field is a, is a, a framework of activity that is going on. Now, obviously, that, that field is going to be energetic because otherwise it doesn't do anything and it's probably a vacuum or something. Uh, although that's complex because that's full of energy as well. Anyway, we, <laughs> let's not, we're, we're back into quantum. But the um, so in the field, you you have uh, a whole set of things that are activating and interacting at their own pace and at their own frame. This is where the then we're getting back to systems theory. Mm-hmm. Is that what we tend to think is that we're operating from some kind of conscious perception and directive control, those direction, that control, these are the words we talk about, and that this is going out, causing a reaction, which then comes back. And so this, and what we call this linear thinking, where I do this, you do that, you do this, I do this, blah, 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 this this process. But it's not. The world is not like that. The world is I do this, you're supposed to do this, but what you end up doing is something entirely different, which completely confuses me because I was expecting something else. So it suddenly it's moved over here and then it's somewhere else. And so then I have to do something else. And then I'm doing something I wasn't expecting to do. And so it goes on. And you can be completely overwhelmed by the flow of a system if you wish it to be linear and controllable and directional and, and directable. So the idea is that certainly we seek to to provoke things and push things and create um, uh, some degree of expectation, some degree of expectable response. But we also need to be aware of the unexpected and the unpredictability of response. And systems theory helps us have confidence in that process because systems just tell us that all the elements interact and come out of something. But it isn't just this wild and crazy, unregulated, um, who God knows what is going to come out. It's actually quite uh, surprisingly organized. And every system, and even to the, the, the rather complex system of life, and the complex, which is probably as complex as the universe, but every system has a set of underlying principles, underlying functional principles, uh, uh, principles and they could be like in a human being that could be uh, biology and electromagnetism and um, uh, you know molecular response really really fundamental conceptual bases of of how it comes to be uh, in process then you have a set of organizing rules or organizing frames that develop over time and become embedded in the system in various ways. Uh, and so suddenly really complex things, and the one that I give the example of in the book is the the the, the schooling fish or those amazing birds, you see, with the hundreds of thousands of birds all sort of doing this amazing pattern of flow. And 
those birds have four organizing principles. Uh, we've done sort of some computer programs to work this out. One is fly wingtip to wingtip, move in a similar direction to the person, uh, to the bird near you. There's somehow these starlings move, seven birds move uh, at the same time. They respond to each other at the same time. They will pick up seven things and instantaneously respond. And the fourth one is when in doubt, move towards the middle. That's it. When human beings uh, integrate a, uh, a self-organizing system into an organized system, the best example of that is traffic lights. So you've got, and particularly those ones where all the they all stop at the same time. Now, the traffic lights, red and green, cars going this way and that way, that's an organized system. It's closed and it's fixed. And if you if you alter the rules of the system, disaster occurs and everything falls apart. This is why if you have an organized system of therapy, you may be lucky and it works out, but you also, if anything goes awry, boom, the whole thing's a disaster and falls apart. So anyway, the lights change and all the cars stop. The organized system is now uh, uh, restrained. And a self-organizing system moves forward where all these people go, and they end up at the other side of the of the wall. Who led that? Who instructed people what to do? Interestingly, about three rules. One is move forward uh, towards the opposite side of the road. Move forward to the opposite uh, direction where you're headed. When you come across an obstruction, step to the left or to the right and swivel. That's it. My God. I mean, all those people just intuitively and to some extent and various with the species depends, it can be written into the, the, um, the DNA. You can have, you know, instinctive behaviours. But intuitively... That's what everybody does. And, in fact, I've done this exercise with people where we build one rule upon the other to, to try and explain to them and show them that it, it can be very simple. So in a therapy session, the organising principles, the organising rules are actually very simple when you work with the natural processes and the natural flows. Uh, when you're working against the natural systems and the natural flows, then it's not so easy because what you do is you set up interferences to the system. And these are variously called perturbators and bifurcators and attractors. And it gets a bit complicated from now. There's probably not need to go down there at this point. But guess what? It's in the book. Yes. <laughs> so, so you can read it in there. But the idea is that the more complicated and, and diffracted and fractious, chaotic, or the more contained and restrained and rigid that a session becomes, it's to do with not allowing the system to flow in a natural, in a natural fashion. So that's the other thing that we include in the book is something that's uh, very important to understand is some of the natural cycles and rhythms, what we call the four-stage creative cycle and the natural uh, 120, 90 to 120-minute Ultradian rhythm. Yeah, yeah. 
So these things are really important to understand because you fight them and you're going to create problems in the system. You're, instead of them being helpful, uh, those things become the, 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 you know, the hawk in the bird's thing or the, 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 the sharks in the, in the school of fish. Yeah. The, the system of, um, that you were just talking about, uh, just, just from experience that, that I've had, um, I do a bit of travelling to India. And I, I teach over there and, and China. Yeah, great stuff. I love it. Um, and it is very, very chaotic. Very, you know, it's busy, busy, busy. There's lots of people. You know, coming from Australia, you kind of look at it and you just see chaos. But in that chaos, everybody has a place. Everybody knows where they're going and what they're doing and how to get there. And if, and if you, um, you know, kind of, you did the driving, which I don't. <laughs> but if you did the driving, it would be just madness, you know. But the, the, there's no lanes, although they're, they're, you know, the lines are on the road, so to speak. But, the, you know, in three lanes, there'll be four or five. Um, so, so in that, you know, from an outsider looking in, it looks chaotic. But within the system, um, it runs and it works. That's right. So it doesn't look yeah. closed and organised and arranged by external forces. Yeah. It actually self-organises itself. And interestingly, in those places, there are much fewer road deaths. There's a lot more. There's a lot more dinging of cars. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But um, oh, there's a big truck coming by. I was up to that. Uh, so there's kind of bingles. So in their in their system, they accept bingles. Yeah. Uh, Whereas in our closed system, we don't accept them. We, we, we find that totally outrageous. We get a little bink, we all stop, and the whole system caves in, and we all take names and addresses and so on and so forth. But it is amazing how, uh, how those things – but what you said is quite right. They're much more chaotic. They're much higher in the level of activity, and so therefore smaller elements uh, need to occur to distract and make the, the system – Fly, fly off into nothing yeah. or as also happens are there less needs to happen to just rigidify and boy things so that nothing happens and no one progresses and everybody just stays where they are so getting that flow between rigidity where nothing's happening where you need to kick on some creativity up to the chaotic area where you need to actually calm the creativity and reduce the creativity and start sort of implementing is there is the natural flow of yeah. what goes on in, uh, in, a, in a true harmonious system. Picking when to creatively uplift and when to implement is the skill of a person and comes from sensitive observation. And really a therapy session, a therapist is looking for those uh, where it's starting to break apart so that they bring it back together. And they're also looking for where it's just getting boring and everyone's just going over and over and over the same thing and it needs some creative um, interaction to push it to push it into some kind of, of activity. That's great because that, that was my next question is, you know, to bring it into the therapy room and, and you've answered that. So I'm just um, – there is a – a quote that I want to, um, you know, sort of read to you from the book, which you probably know. <laughs> I've read it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you say, um, it is possible 
to be a therapist who enters into the therapy system with the client. So could you elaborate on that? Well, that's, that's I think, the thing that's most important about understanding this. And the chapter, I, I call it thinking in the system. Because there's a there's I don't know there's sort of a a, a frame of education out there that sort of says the therapist is a, a separate entity and is a is a um, someone that imparts stuff to the client that the client then does work with or but it's sort of like this observer this sort of external element and the essence of what I'm saying there is as soon as you're in the room whatever is in the room is in a system. Yes. It's in a it's in a it's in an automatically self-organizing feedback loop uh, enriched system. And everything you say and everything you do is not something that goes out there and something's done with. It's something that flows. And everything the client says and does flows. So what that leads Ernie and I to 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 say is that the best way to be in a therapeutic experience is responsive. And we call, and we actually spend a bit of time trying to expand the, the, the conceptual idea, but it's pretty obvious, is to be client responsive. We used to be very client directive, and that was sort of like, you know, that, that's, all, that's all that happened. We just told them. And in fact, in, in some of the psychoanalytical things, the therapist would sit behind the chair yes. uh, and say nothing. I mean, there's always the wonderful jokes where they, they sit them down, the client starts to do whatever they do, and they go out the back and play some golf and then come back in at the end of the hour and say, thank you very much, see you next week. Uh, and frankly, sometimes I think that's what actually happened. But uh, this idea that we are observers or secondary or independent of the experience is the error of uh, a lot of the, the ways in which psychotherapy and psychology has gone. Now, the other problem that occurs is that it gets over the top, and of course, then you get um, over engagement, loss of boundaries, and blurring of things. Um, and sure, that's important, and we need to have a sense. The system, one of the organizing principles of the system, is that you are the therapist and they are the client. Absolutely. Um, so don't, don't don't misunderstand that I'm saying you just go in and do whatever. Yeah. Uh, you, within the organising principles of, of, of client and therapist. So within, sorry, within those yeah, organising no, no. principles, there's a role to be played, isn't there? The role of the therapist and the role of yeah. the client. And that's yeah. part of the system is that, yeah. um, that those roles exist. And they remain, and they, and they remain truths. Yeah. As an actor, when I'm playing Hamlet, I am playing Hamlet. I don't, stop every now and again and go, Phew, gee, this Shakespeare is hard. Uh, sorry, folks. And then get on. we also have what's called the fourth wall, which is the, the you know, what we call the fourth wall, uh, that the audience looks through. And as a, an actor has to imagine and remain true to the fact that that wall exists and uh, the audience doesn't, uh, which is sometimes very odd, particularly when you're doing a comedy. You, you, you get a laugh and you feel like turning around to the audience and going, hey. uh, but that uh, that doesn't work when you're acting. And the same thing with therapy. Uh, there is always that frame of wanting to maintain that. Now, sometimes you actually do break the rules or you go outside these roles. And it's really important to be, because uh, that's 
there's an operation that occurs, an activity that occurs. If your observation is sensitive, you'll see yourself do that and you'll utilize that in whatever way is necessary. You might, for example, say, oh, I just I just did that something and I'm really sorry about that. I, that was actually a personal thing. I, um, and some uh, and you may notice it straight away. You may notice it later. These things uh, are uh, actually called enactments, which is where the therapist actually causes a problem for the client because of their actions. And these can be terrific uh, and useful because they trigger all kinds of stuff, but not if they go on, uh, uh, you know, unabated and unobserved. So the idea of being in the system when you're a therapist is to maximize the possibility, the, the maximize the emergence of possibility, of all the possibilities. The more you are restricted that your that your organizing principles are, I am doing this type of therapy and I only say these sorts of things and I don't let clients do this and I only do this and this and or as you add all these rules, um, these alter the way in which the system flows. So it's a really good idea for everybody to have a little think about what are the actual, now we call them rules or uh, the, 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 the contract we write, all these sorts of things. Yeah. What are they when you're in the, the therapy room and how do they affect the systemic process, systemic flow? Do they allow it to flow more successfully? Do they actually create restrictive patterns? Do they actually create what we call fixed attractors or or we call certain bowl attractors where the, the therapy keeps sinking into this 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 bowl of, of of what I want the therapy to do. Equally that goes to the client. Is the client continually um, pushing the therapy in particular directions to particular ways? If you're observing it and you notice it, that's the most wonderful gift because you go, ah, I now will respond to that. Yeah, yeah. And I guess you can do the sort of, uh, you know, when the, the client's responding in such a way, you could sort of do the, gee, I'm just wondering, you know, what you're feeling or what you say at that moment when when you've just yeah. replied this way. So you kind of dig in there, don't you? And, you can, and there's a word you, that I just love that you use, and it's the word curiosity. So it's almost that, um, you know, that that you're saying, look, I'm really curious about the way that you just responded there. Can you fill me in about that? Let's just sit with that and have a look yeah. at it. And, and that's something that I've learned from you, actually, yeah, um, you know, that, that idea of um, being curious, it, you know, without is, judgment. That's right. Yeah. Because – you're interested and you're amazed to wait, you're patient enough to wait to see what will emerge from the, uh, from the, the wonderment that is, that is occurring, the, the interaction and the flow that, that's, that's going on. And why I truly get excited about curiosity is because I've looked at all the different states, the general sort of states of being, I mean, there's happiness, there's uh, feeling safe and comfortable, uh, there's there's lots of different states that we'd like clients to get into and they move through as as we work with them. But the one that we really need is we need them to not be constrained. We need them to be uh, to to not be fearful. We need them to get to the uh, a situation where they're 
moving forward. They're moving into the experience. They're not sitting rigidly or moving away. We need them to be anticipating possibility. Uh, and we need them to be sharp and focused. We need them to be attentive and, and paying attention. And when I look at happiness, that does some of those things, but not all of them. And when I look at joy, it does some of them, but not all of them. When I look at wonderment, it does some of them, but not all of them. But when I look at curiosity, that does all of them. Mm. At the one time, suddenly my mind opens up. I become more focused in my attention. I'm drawn forward and I'm prepared for possible change and possible variations and unexpected things. Uh, so that marvelous thing when someone sits in front of you and does something and you just say, that is so interesting. I wonder if we can just, now there are a variety of ways you're doing, you suggested a few. I wonder if we can just sit with that for a period of time yeah. and see where it goes. Or I wonder if we can dive into that a bit deeper. Or I wonder if we can put that to the side and just let that do something on the side and we'll go off here and do something else and see what happens and see what happens. But this idea of that we will allow this uh, to be an element of the system and produce some kind of feedback loop or some kind of energetic uh, change that will have an emergence at some frame. Yes. Yes. And that's the pretty curious cool. state. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Actually, we need to talk more about the book because oh. this is fascinating. We need to. We, we need what? to. <laughs> because yes. with all my bits falling out. <laughs> um, yes, I've got notes in, even in my own book. <laughs> just in case you forget to remember. <laughs> um, so uh, there's a couple of things that um, – uh, I, I kind of wanted to uh, bring in here, you, you know, some of the things is that I'm fascinated about a couple of concepts that you have, which um, one's called the growing edge and the other one's the creative edge. You know, these these sort of concepts are, are new to me, but um, in the same sense, they're known to me, but not using that language yes. is the, um, the NNNE, which is um, – Really, and I'll, I'll let you explain that too. That is fascinating to me as as well. There's another question too, and I'll, I'll um, let you go ahead. Is the actual work that you do? You know, the the collaboration with you and Ernest Rossi, and the idea that you came up with this mirroring hands, um, and 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 how that developed because. You know, the background is these systems and these things which are really fascinating and, and curious to know about. Um, yeah. But how did it come out with, with mirroring hands? So I'll just leave that with uh, you if you could explain. Well, on there's that. a few yeah. things. And, and the, the place to start is Ernest Rossi. Okay. Um, and I am, I am a, 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 a wonderfully uh, fortunate person who's been, who's been uh, given the gift of, uh, uh, of by Ernie, to be directly and um, uh, actively engaged in this process. Mirroring hands uh, are from Ernie. And uh, Ernie has, Ernest Rossi, pardon my familiarity, but I know him quite well. But he has been doing this process. In fact, I was just uh, rereading um, because I'm, I'm working on the 16 volumes of Milton Erickson Collected Works. What, what else do you do on the weekend off? But I was working on, on uh, Volume 10, which is from a book called Hypnotic Realities, which was written in 1976. 
And a lot of these principles and concepts are in there, uh, in that book in 1976. And why I think they're valid to be in the 1976 book, then in Ernie's book, The Symptom Path to Enlightenment in 1996, and then uh, our book together in 2016-17, you know, these, these decades leaps, is because we're focusing on what is natural. And this were these natural cycles and rhythms and themes and looking at the, the natural organizing principles of human systems. So we'll just move on from there, uh, remind, just reminding you. But, but Ernest Rossi is an extraordinary human being uh, in the context of, of psychotherapy and of clinical hypnotherapy. Uh, he worked with uh, Ericsson in the 70s. He, Ernie would drive down there almost weekly, uh, uh, sometimes monthly, uh, other times, and spend a period of time with him and then drive home, and uh, they would write books together. And Ernie really brought Erickson's work into uh, a verbal form, into written form, so that we, uh, it's because of uh, Ernest's work that we actually have such a grasp on um, the way in which uh, uh, Erickson practiced, along with all the amazing papers that Erickson did as well. Uh, and so, you know, I saw Ernie first in 2005, but he's been showing this practice since, you know, the 80s. And uh, yeah. but but I went to the the Evolution of Psychotherapy conference in in uh, America and uh, uh, the Erickson Foundation and that was fantastic and uh, I don't know there were all these amazing people uh, like Aaron Beck and uh, and so on and so forth all the big names and I I never heard of Ernest Rossi I thought oh, I'll go along and see him it's all right interesting oh it was amazing. It was amazing. My jaw hit the floor. Actually, it was on the floor for five days. Everybody's walking around with gravel rash on their chin. <laughs> uh, but he brought these hands out and he said, I wonder if you could just pay attention to your hands. And we're going, okay. So I'm there. And he said, I'm wondering if you can notice. We spent a couple of minutes doing this. And he says, I wonder if one of your hands feels a little heavier or perhaps a little colder. And people were all sitting there going, oh, and suddenly their hands were wiggling. Mm. And he said, you are now in perhaps not a deep trance, but certainly a general waking trance. And you now have an altered reality because you have determined that one of your hands is colder or stronger or weaker or whatever. And it's not because they're just your hands and they're just sitting out there. And you have actually had a biological and idiomotor response that was totally unconscious and, and, and non-directed, and it just told you something. And you're now all sitting there looking at that hand as if it's really important. I wonder what the importance is of that hand. What's in it? What is it? And off we went. Yeah. And I'm going, oh, my goodness. Uh, I think it took me a few years to really learn. I've been going back to the Ericsson conferences every year. Yeah. Uh, and then I meet with Ernie every now and again when I can, particularly, you know, culminating in our extraordinary, what I call a week with Ernest Rossi in, in uh, June of 2016, uh, which we, we met and recorded and we have long transcripts, some of which are in the book. Uh, so it's a beautiful, that's the lovely thing in the book. It has a real life experience with, with Ernest and, and, and me and our conversations. And one chapter is Ernest talking about the history of how mirroring hands emerged out of Rossi and Ericsson, and then later on how it has been um, uh, uh, had some additional emergence with Richard Hill. Quite extraordinary, quite extraordinary. 
So that process was going through, and only was talking then about the the, the psychobiology of gene expression back in yeah, the. Do they? He was talking about the 90s. He's so ahead. Now he's talking about quantum. Uh, but but he's so he's so lovely. He sort of came up to uh, after a while. I mean, I just went up and I said, g'day, because I'm Australian and I didn't know you were supposed to talk to these famous people. And I said, I've written a book. Would you read it? And I said that to half a dozen people, uh, uh, Glasser and I think uh, uh, Joan um, uh, anyway, what's her name? Uh, a few, Gene Houston and a few others. And Ernie came back to me a couple of months later and said, this is a great book, I really like it, I think you've covered a lot of ground. And now I'm reading Erickson and doing all the things, I see the resonance. And basically he picked up that I was focusing in on the natural processes, on these natural rhythms and cycles, and I was getting it. Uh, You're on the right page, so, the same page so as he is, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, but it's not an easy journey being mentored by someone who's incredibly busy. We would, you know, converse uh, through the year, but I wouldn't just, you know, hey, Ernie, how you doing? I had a really good day today. Yeah. I would uh, say I would be exploring everything. I'd find something that I, I, would, I thought was so extraordinary that I would then share it with him. I'd say, Ernie, I found this paper. This to me says so-and-so and so-and-so. I thought you would like to um, look at the paper. Now, Six times out of ten, Ernie would come back saying, oh, yes, I've seen that paper quite like your But four times out of ten, he would come back and say, wonderful, I've not seen this and you've really taught me something. Ah. What an extraordinary mentor. Wow. You know, what an extraordinary mentor. Yeah. So we had that work going on. And then so over the years, um, I developed, uh, uh, I got his permission to, to teach uh, the practice, and I did some workshops, and and I was very cautious about what was doing. And it was in 2016 that he said, uh, "My fantasy is that you write a book." And I said, "Ernie, my fantasy is that I write a book." <laughs> and so we got together and we produced it. But it's all based around this idea of the N N N E, which is novelty, numinosum, neurogenesis effect. Mm. So it's the novelty, the wonder, the curiosity, the yes. firing of curiosity, the numinosum, the firing of amazement and extraordinariness. It's a, it's a word that actually came from a, a book by a guy named Otto on spirituality, but that sense of the tremendous, the extraordinary, the awesome, the wonderful. And that these things, novelty, getting yourself into a curious state, the numinosum, the experience of the fact that you are in the, in the the you are in the experience of something greater than just your own self, so therefore you're not limiting it, triggers neurogenesis and changes the brain, triggering not only uh, uh, new neuron growth, particularly as we know in the hippocampus and various other areas, but also synaptic growth and connective growth across and a range across the brain. Now we can put another one in here which has come later, which is the understanding of the uh, genetic expression, so the gene expression. Yeah. But you kind of maybe that kind of goes in there because you need to have gene expression to have uh, neurogenesis. But neurogenesis is covering that, that whole biological growth and change. And this is the experience yeah. that is at the growing edge. Yes. So this doesn't happen in the safe place. This doesn't happen in the safe zone. This, this NNN, happens 
at the growing edge, at the space where you're going to where you've not been, amazed and treading in grounds that that is beyond your possibility, and then bringing it into you and making it a part of you. That's what we do in therapy. That it, that is so cool, and the um, the neuro sort of epigenetic sort of stuff that Rossi has been doing for many many years. He's always been, you know, because I I like his work. I've liked his work for a long time. He's always been ahead of his time. You know? Ridiculously, to yeah. the, to the point that yeah. that when it comes round to having, uh, and it's so annoying. There's there's good money being spent on um, uh, genetic expression, gene expression and epigenetic uh, yeah. work and not much of it is filtering down to, to Ernie, probably because they're going, oh well he's older now, we'll send it to the young ones yeah. and you sort of think oh, dang being an explorer, being an adventurer being a, a leader is sometimes very costly yeah. now he's allowed me to be the person whose name is associated directly associated with his in relation to the mirroring hands approach. This is this is humanism. This is yeah. just like what a responsibility. Because Ernie's saying, you know, I'm old and tired. I've been doing this for 40 years. Come on, Richard. Now you take it beyond the growing edge. You find the grow the creative space for it you push it out of its rigidity and you make it something that uh else something more and um yeah that's true i'm i'm gonna do that yeah and i'm gonna yeah. do that it's great great work i've had your wonderful um time for an hour and i do very much appreciate it i really do the, there is one question left and that is if you could talk to the 16 year old boy all those years ago what is it that you would say to him knowing all this information knowing your journey and everything what would you say to him keep your eyes wide keep your hopes a part of your creativity and your creative capacity and don't ever think that there isn't a possibility in your field that you can trigger Because that's what I did. I mean, even when I was an actor, I would go back to acting friends, and I and uh, we had get-togethers, and they say, "What are you doing now?" And I say, "Well, I'm a neuroscientific psychotherapist dealing in gene expression and quantum with Ernest Rossi in the states." And they go, <laughs> "That's great. What are you really doing?" <laughs> yes. Uh, so I would never have known, and and. Uh, there was a wonderful, Benjamin Zander has a wonderful uh, uh, TED talk, and he's a conductor, he's a famous conductor. And he said, I used to think that my job was to make those musicians sound good. And then it dawned on me that these musicians were wonderful, individual, creative geniuses in their own space. And that I would look out, and when they were in their magic, when they were the, in the NNNE, their eyes would sparkle. So my job was to get everybody's eyes sparkling. And when they weren't sparkling, I didn't look for what they were missing. I looked for what I was missing. And that is the best lesson for me as a 16-year-old boy and for me as a therapist. When your, when your client 
their eyes sparkle and they sparkle in different ways. Sometimes they sparkle with great sadness. But when they sparkle with truth, you grab it, you engage with it and you respond to it because they've given you a gift. They've given you the gift of what their intuition knows is how they will resolve their problem, but their conscious mind is so confused or traumatized or disrupted or disengaged to be able to see. And they're asking you, and they're actually prepared to pay you to notice it and share it back to them. Mm. That's lovely. That's lovely. Well, Richard Hill, thank you so much for a lovely um enlightened, full of education, a bit more than an hour, which is great. (laughs) And, um, yeah, thank you very much. And you've made me even more curious (laughs) to find out more information. So thanks again. But we're going to do some work. We're doing work together. There'll be workshops. Uh, I I hope everybody uh, links into what we're doing and expands and connects with this extraordinary stuff where we bring all this into actual physical practice but also into the heart and soul. Yeah. So that'll be the way. Look forward to uh, uh, you. You'll hear. Um, I'll be. I'll be beating around everybody's doors as best I can. <laughs> Thanks again. If you'd like more information, then go to the Mind Care Podcast website. We'll also tell you about our next guest.